God, by his very nature, is eternal. The psalmist declares, from eternity to eternity, you are God. And this eternal God has an eternal purpose. Paul uses that expression in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. God made or formed his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. So the eternal God has an eternal purpose. His eternal purpose was planned in detail in what we call eternity past. Before anything was created, before time and space existed, there was only God himself making a detailed plan. And this plan, as we will see, is fulfilled in space and time. And then the universe will undergo a radical change. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And then there will be the eternal fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. And as the hymn indicates clearly, we are travelers in time. Time is a bridge. Time is a process. And there is a very enlightening yet simple note in the recovery version on one of the verses at the beginning of Genesis that time is for the fulfillment of God's purpose. So let's very briefly consider what did God plan in eternity past and what will God have in eternity future? And then we'll come back to where we are in space and in time and see to what extent we will choose to live out the line of a hymn that we just sang. Lord, we are holy for your purpose. And we will settle the question of whether or not our personal journey in time, our journey on the bridge of time, Will that become a contribution to the fulfillment of God's purpose? Or will our own verdict be, as Solomon's was, vanity of vanities? All is vanity. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, or verse 4 rather, <clears throat> Paul tells us that God chose us in Christ to be holy. So whether we like it or not, God, without asking our consent, decided to choose us to be holy. Though just ponder for a moment. Be holy 
Only God is holy. To be holy is to have the same nature as God. No, you will not be God in the Godhead. That was ridiculous. But we will have the divine nature. And several verses throughout the Bible record God as saying, Be holy as I am holy. So to be holy is to be the same as God in nature. Then the next verse, Ephesians 1.5, tells us that God predestinated us unto sonship. Once again, God, without consulting with us, determined our destiny before he created anything. And that verse doesn't say we're predestinated to salvation. It doesn't say we're predestinated to heaven. It says we're predestinated unto sonship. And words like sons and brothers in the New Testament include all believers, male and female, just as expressions bride and counterpart include all male believers. This is the way God thinks and speaks. So this surely indicates the sonship matter, that we will have the life of a son, and that we will be in the position of sons. So in these two verses, God decided concerning us and millions of others, you will be holy. And you will be a mature son filled with the divine life and expressing God. Then at the end of the first chapter of Ephesians, we have a clue as to what this is for. And the chapter ends with a word concerning the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. And this organic body of Christ is the corporate expression of God in Christ. Now we fast forward to a glimpse into eternity given by the Lord to the Apostle John. He was very limited in space on the rocky island of Patmos. Limited in time, he was 90 plus, but still he was in spirit. The heavens were opened. He received the ultimate revelation. And in chapter 1, the angel said, come up here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So clearly, the angel is saying, I will show you a person. But then what did John see? He saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, having the glory of God. So is this not mysterious? I will show you a person the bride, the wife, and this person is presented as a city. 
Well, surely no one on earth is going to marry Boston, no matter how much you love it. I don't think you want to live forever and ever married to a city, not even Paris, not New York. That's an impossibility. And the New Jerusalem has certain striking characteristics. It's called the Holy City. So that corresponds to Ephesians 1.4, doesn't it? Chosen to be holy. Now you're part of this corporate person that's a kingdom signified by the city. The whole city is holy. And if we study the end of Revelation, we will see this person is a composition of the matured and glorified believers as sons of God. So God's goal is to have an eternal marriage with a corporate person who is the same as he is in life, in nature, and expression. And the two will become one. And this person is also described as a building and the significance of building, when the Lord said, I will build my church, that means corporate expression. So the Bible ends with a glorious counterpart, a glorious corporate expression of the God in Christ as the Spirit. And this eternal wife, Bride counterpart will be a composition of the millions of believers chosen in eternity past, created in time, redeemed and saved in time. And then they will decide when, during space and time, they will mature. They will have a choice. You may reach maturity during your lifetime. During your lifetime. And if so, you are considered a victor, an overcomer. But the vast majority of believers, for various reasons, will not grow in life, will not be transformed, will not be matured, and will not be built up in their lifetime. Rather, they will just mainly do what God allows them to do, not what's in his heart. So they will end their life on earth not ready. And the Lord will use another age, the age of the kingdom, to complete the work and all the rest. This is an unpopular truth. It's, for some, a challenging truth. But if you reread the Gospel of Matthew again, you will read something about the kingdom of the heavens. And you will read a verse in Matthew 7 that says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but he who does the will of my Father who is in the heavens. 
So what I'm trying to say is the eternal God has an eternal purpose, an eternity past. He chose us to be holy, predestinated us unto sonship, so that in eternity future, we would be part of this corporate person who is holy, who is filled with the divine life. And this is the counterpart, the wife of the redeeming God, but she is also the kingdom signified by the city. This is God's eternal purpose. Now we're coming to us where we are in space and time. And I'd like to bring to your attention two significant expressions by our brother Paul. In 2 Timothy 1.9, he said, God saved us and called us according to his own purpose. I didn't know this when I believed into the Lord and he came into me. I was just a few weeks shy of being 16. Those who were around me, all the ministers, they didn't know either. <coughs> I went to get a theological education in Princeton, New Jersey. None of my professors knew. I wrote this interesting paper, this and that. This is a special thesis. I didn't know. It wasn't until I came into the Lord's recovery under the ministry of the age that I saw what God's purpose is. God saved you for his purpose. Amen. And his purpose is not to prepare a condo for you in the heavens. <clears throat> his, his purpose is for you to be part of his heart's desire, his corporate expression. So in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says God saved us according to his own purpose. But in chapter 3, verses 10 and following, he's pointing out to Timothy, his spiritual child, that although so many have lost heart, all of Asia abandoned me. They don't want to stand with an apostle who's in prison, who's about to be martyred. It's too risky. But you're my son. And he said, Timothy, you have closely followed. Then he lists a number of things. You have closely followed my teaching. And then he said in 310, you have closely followed my purpose. My purpose. But in 1.9, Paul speaks of God's own purpose. Yet in 3.10, he says, my purpose. What is this? This means God's eternal purpose became Paul's purpose. He had no other purpose, no other reason to live and serve other than contributing to the fulfillment of God's purpose. It was my purpose. And Paul indicates to Timothy, you closely followed my purpose. You could see it. 
And when you saw me living and serving, you saw God's purpose lived out in a human being. My purpose. Then in the next chapter, he indicated again to Timothy that he, Paul, had now finished the course. His journey in time was over. He fought the good fight. He kept the faith. He finished the course. He's being poured out. He's ready to be martyred. There's a crown of righteousness awaiting for him. But he had to tell Timothy, fulfill your ministry. So here we have, on the one hand, a very profound revelation in Ephesians and the book of Revelation concerning God's eternal purpose. On the other hand, we see the actuality of this. A believer, once who was an enemy, an opposer, now an ardent believer, who can testify, I live, I breathe for God's purpose. And by the Lord's mercy, I emphasize strongly, absolutely because of the Lord's mercy. I am here with you because God's purpose has become my purpose. I only wish I had learned this when I was 16, but better learn it at 27 than at 72, but if you learn it at 72, you're not too late. It's how we end. Right? It's how we end. Like in a professional football game, let's say it's the Super Bowl. It's not, oh, we were ahead. Well, we were behind at halftime. Who cares about the score at halftime? Who has the most points on the board at the end of the game? So... No matter what our age is, no matter what our personal history is, no matter how many mistakes we made, we're here under the Lord's sovereign mercy, under his tender love. He is for us. He is here to supply us. He's here to encourage us. That's why we're meeting here together. So I'm about to introduce the subject of this conference, but I want to say one other thing to try to make clear what is going on in me regarding these four messages. They'll be presented on two levels, the level of truth and the level of experience. And we know from Ephesians, from Paul's two prayers, that what comes first is the revelation. Paul prayed for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know what's on God's heart, what his purpose is. Then in chapter 3, he prayed for our experience. He prayed that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit into the inner man, that Christ would make his home in our hearts through faith, that we would be filled unto all the fullness of God. So this leads to the following. The truth in the New Testament 
is profound. It's the divine thought, the opening up of God's heart, the unveiling of his will. This is how God thinks. This is what God wants. Yet, the actual application in life is elegantly simple. I do know of a situation in a certain continent, it's all over, that a, a certain worker was working there, and his view of the people there was they were not able to really understand what was being released in the ministry. So he would go and hear the messages, and then he would come back to his domain, then he would present a simplified version. To me, this is a disrespectful view of fellow human beings. In 1995, some of us were sent by Brother Lee to the south of the Philippines to fight for the high peak of the divine revelation against the opposers. That God became man to make man God in Christ, in life in nature, but not in the Godhead. So I was down far to the south at the center of the battle. And I met these dear leading brothers and co-workers who had no choice. They grew up in dire poverty. Most of their education stopped at the third grade. Now they were laboring as fishermen and farmers day and night to give their sons and daughters the opportunity to get a university education. Yet I can testify, all of them were well able to receive the highest truth. And so I've learned, we don't look down on anyone. We're not superior to anyone. As long as we can make matters clear, there's a capacity created in human beings by God. With your spirit and mind working together and the light shining into you, that you can see it. You can understand it. You don't need a Ph.D. in theology from Harvard Divinity School. I don't have a chip in my shoulder, but I seriously doubt whether anyone on the faculty of the Harvard Divinity School knows what God's eternal purpose is. Because if they knew, they wouldn't be on the faculty of Harvard <laughs> Divinity School. <laughs> But this is my, um, well, I, you know, I'm not looking for a fight, but at the same time, we're ready to take on the entire system of traditional Christianity theology and evaluate it according to the Word of God. Now, let me explain the general subject, and then we'll go through the outline with these two lines of development, the truth and the life experience, okay? Knowing, experiencing, and ministering. The intrinsic constitution of the building of God. 
So knowing, this refers to our spiritual understanding. Mentioned by the Lord in his prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The divine life enables us to know the divine things. In 1 John 5.20, Brother John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we might know the one who is true, and we are in the one who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So the Son of God has come and has given to all of us a spiritual understanding to know the divine things. You may be a welder. You may be a Nobel Prize winner in physics. We're all on the same level. Like in the humans, we all have to breathe. We all have to drink. We all have to eat. And we all have this capacity. Then experiencing. This means that the spirit of reality working with our regenerated human spirit, is guiding us into the reality of what we've been learning. Now you just have the sense, I'm touching the real thing. I'm touching the reality of all that I've been hearing for these years. And then ministering means that we, in caring for others and caring for one another, we dispense this reality into others. Something has been wrought into our being. It becomes part of our constitution. And now all of us, this is part of the God-ordained way, the recovery of the shepherding in mutuality. We have no category of brothers way up here. They do all the shepherding. They're the experts. They don't need anyone to help them. And then they come down and they try to care for others. That's the hierarchy of the clergy laity system. We all are sheep who need shepherding. We all are shepherds who can shepherd. That's why sometimes to kind of uh, prod the seeking and the full-time trainees, I ask them, do you think I can shepherd you? And of course they will say yes, but that's the setup for my real question. Do you believe you can shepherd me? You have to believe that because you can. I can't live without you. I can't live without the members of the body. And so the, the ministering is not somebody who's going to give a 75-minute message necessarily, but we can actually impart to other human beings if they're not saved, the Lord can shine through us into them. If they're already a believer, then we just care for one another. And what we are seeing, experiencing, and ministering is the constitution of the building of God. The building of God is ultimately the body of Christ. And the body of Christ consummates as the new Jerusalem, which is a corporate person, the wife of the redeeming God. Yet that corporate person is called a city because she is also the kingdom of God. 
She expresses God. She represents God. So that's the building. And this building has an organic constitution. It's not a mere organization. It's something that grows organically in life. Just like we all began in the same way as a single cell. Then how do we get from that to where we are now? There's a law of life in that living cell which governed the development of this life through all of its stages. So now, as tripartite beings, we have a constitution. We're not robots. We're not mechanical things. We have a constitution. Well, the building of God, this corporate person, also has a constitution. She was chosen to be holy. Holiness is part of her constitution. She was predestinated to be a son expressing God, the divine life, the divine element, is part of the Constitution. Eventually, we'll see in Colossians that the all-inclusive Christ himself is the Constitution of our being, for he is making his home in our hearts. That means he's saturating your inner being with himself until he feels comfortable to live there forever. That's the Constitution. But now we're modifying constitution by the word intrinsic, which refers to the essential nature of something that determines what it is. And the four outlines will cover eight aspects of this high truth revealed especially in books like Ephesians and Colossians. But the source of this truth is that God is light. And the word conveys the truth objectively. But then the divine light shines on the word. Then it becomes reality and truth in our being. So the way the Lord turned Saul of Tarsus, who probably was a genius, he didn't send a super apostle to out-debate him. He just sent forth, he sent forth light, a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Then the essence of Paul's ministry was light. The Lord commissioned him at that very time, open people's eyes, turn them from darkness to light. And then in 2 Corinthians, he talks about, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the God who said, out of darkness light shall shine, has shined in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God's way of bringing the truth into us is to shine himself into us. The enemy hates this. So his strategy is to attack the mind. This is also in 2 Corinthians 4. And to blind the thoughts, to bias the thoughts, to close the mind. So there's no way for the light to enter into the mind, pass through the heart, and reach the spirit. 
That's why it's kind of ironic. You got some of these exceedingly brilliant people, way, way beyond my capacity. But I just have the realization, your mind is very small and it's closed and it's full of bias. You don't really have an open mind. If you have an open mind, you say, okay, I, let, I will open to the possibility that this might be true. I'm going to open my being. And then the divine light comes. It doesn't matter. You could be the most aggressive atheist around. No one will argue. No one can argue with light. And so we have the first three matters that go together as a unit, being one with God, being constituted with God, and living God. So God's desire, right now, toward you, and, and the you here is singular, is he wants to make himself one with you. He doesn't want there to be a gap. He wants to make himself one with you. Paul wrote about this, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. And he also wants to make you one with him. You are still you. You have the characteristics God intended. But now, God himself in Christ, as the Spirit, is living in you and is one with you to work himself into you as your constitution so that you spontaneously live him as you're living your human life. God is shining out of you. This is what he wants. So first, we have the matter of being one with God. Now, let's consider something. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says God dwells in unapproachable light. If he dwells in unapproachable light, then how can he be one with us? How can we be one with him? If we try to approach, we'll be incinerated, right? We'll be smoke. Well, that is God in his unique Godhead. Well, God knows in his nature he is unapproachable light. So this is God's procedure. He would put the light into a lamp, an L-A-M-P. And the lamp, the L-A-M-P, is a lamb, L-A-M-B. This we see in Revelation 21. God the light in itself is unapproachable, but he wants to be approachable. He wants us to have access to him. He wants to have access to us. So he embodies the light in a lamp. That's the lamb. Now, I don't know on the category of phobias, if someone has lambophobia, I never heard of someone being frightened by a little lamb, a little lamb. But anyway, the lamb makes the light so pleasant. 
So the Lamb is Jesus, God incarnate. So he comes to the earth and some religious people bring to him out of bias, you will see, a woman caught in adultery. According to the law, they should have brought both the man and the woman. But because they were anti-woman, really, and inhumane, and partial, and biased, and prejudiced, they only, they only brought the woman. They let the man go. And they said, Moses said, she should be killed. What do you say? So he wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Then he said, he who has, who's, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And beginning with the oldest, down to the youngest, they left. Then, just the woman and the Lord were together. He said, who condemns you? No one. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then he said, I am the light of the world. This is how the light comes. What, what kind of embarrassment, what kind of shame to be caught like that, brought by a horde of religious bigots wanting to see you stoned to death and the light in the lamb, as the lamp, is there shining gently on you, loving you, saying, you're forgiven, don't sin anymore. I'm the light, I'm the truth, the truth will set you free. Amen. Well, that was in his incarnation. That was 2,000 years ago. But through his death and resurrection, he became not only the glorified Christ with a resurrected body on the throne, he became the life-giving spirit who enters into our spirit with all that he is. And we know from Proverbs 20, 27, that the human spirit is the lamp of the Lord. So the Lord comes into the lamp as the light and he sets on in, in, enlightens us in our inner being. Right now, all of us that are regenerated, there's a light glowing deep inside of us. Amen. And this is the formerly unapproachable God becoming not only approachable, but enterable. We can be one with him. He can be one with us. And what's in his heart is gradually to remove all the hindrances in us is being absolutely mingled with us and one with us. And the more we're one with him, oh, we have certain kind of inner senses, a, an unshakable peace, an indescribable joy to be just one with the triune God and have the realization, now, Lord, I spontaneously make a decision. I will live the rest of my life for your purpose. Your purpose is mine. No matter what I'm doing outwardly in the stage of my human life, if I'm a student, a graduate student, I just got married, I just became a grandpa, I'm in good health, I'm in bad health, whatever it is, whatever situation I'm in, you gave me this day. Today, is for your purpose. I live for your purpose. 
Now we can read the subpoints that will help bring to light this main thought. Roman 1. As God's chosen, redeemed, and regenerated people, we should be one with God. The basic principle of the Bible is that in his economy, that's God's plan to dispense himself. In his economy, God is making himself one with man and making man one with him. John 15, 4. Abide in me, we're one with him, and I in you, he's one with us. And if you would like to try this out, you may want to pray. You could pray inwardly right now. Lord, make yourself one with me today. Make me one with you today. So that, oh, 12 or 13 hours from now, when I go to sleep, I can just whisper to you, I'm more one with you right now than the one I was when I woke up this morning. I believe this happens. Days matter. Time matters. B, God desires that the divine life and the human life be joined together to become one life that has one living. He was joined to the Lord as one spirit. That's the verse cited there. One spirit. C says, in the Bible... To be one with God means to be mingled with God. So God with his divine life in nature is mingled with our divine life in nature. But we're still human and he's still God. But yet we become a different kind of human because we have God living in us. But that doesn't efface or erase our humanity this is what it means to be a God-man, to be humanly divine and divinely human. Biblical oneness with God is a oneness in which we enter into God and God enters into us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Of him, this is of God, you are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? Hey, let me just pause. To tell you the truth, I can't think about this with concentration more than a few seconds. I get kind of vertigo. It's just astounding. Right now, the triune God in Christ as the Spirit is in us. Amen. As a person. It's just like I say this respectively, Lord, you're not only with us as Emmanuel, that's your name. You're in us. And you may be saying, yeah, I know. I want you to know. One of Paul's last words to his spiritual child Timothy was, Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. The Lord. The Lord be with your spirit. I have to go, Timothy. I have to go by martyrdom. The Lord is with your spirit. 
Christ is making his home in our heart. So he wants to come from our spirit and grow in us until he fills our mind, emotion, and will. Okay, D presents the truth from the book of Job that we may not like, but it's just part of the process. God's intention is to tear us down and rebuild us with himself as our life and nature so that we may be absolutely one with him. See, Job in himself had such integrity, so righteous. Self is powerful. No one can get through. Well, how can God make himself one with a person, with a soul like that? So the Lord allows things to come that will break through that so that now this one's inner being is open to be saturated with God. And I'm speaking on behalf of the body, on behalf of the history in the body. Many, many of us know what we're talking about. It's nothing to fear. What I would fear is ending my life untouched, untouched by God. Untransformed, not saved in life. So Job eventually, in chapter 42, testified to God himself. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear. That was all hearsay, all doctrine. I believed it all. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself. Now I see what I am. Now I see why you had to deal with me. And I repent of what I was. So this is part of it. It's not the main thing, but it's part of it. And many in this room we have gone through costly things, sometimes heartbreaking things. But after time, and we look back, in a real sense, we have to just worship the Lord Amen. for what he gained. We just worship him. Amen. He knows that we're going through it. We don't feel that way. He's patient. He knows I've offered him many, many retroactive amens. Okay. Lord, I should have said this 17 years ago, but now I can say amen. And I might pray something like this, Lord, Lord, I, I thank you for that experience. And I also pray that it never happens again. <laughs> and then the Lord might say something, but he's not out to outwit us. He might say, that will never happen again. Um, there are other things that will happen. <laughs> then E, in 1 Corinthians 7, we see the principle of being absolutely one with the Lord in all circumstances, situations, and conditions. This chapter conveys the spirit of a person who loves the Lord, who cares for the Lord's intention on earth, who is obedient, submissive, and satisfied with God, and the circumstances arranged by him. Okay, that's rather abstract. What happens is, in, first, in the previous chapter, he said, we're one spirit with him. Now in chapter 7, Paul has to respond to a series of questions about marriage. Okay? 
Well, this is not easy, especially when you're caring for single saints that want to be married and what do we do? So at the beginning of the chapter, he says, okay, regarding this one, I've got a word from the Lord. So he gives the word from the Lord. But then there's an even more challenging question, and he says, I don't have any word from the Lord. I don't have any revelation. So here's what. I will give you my opinion. I'll just tell you what I think. Okay? So he tells us what he thinks. He gives us his opinion. Then when he's all done, he says, you know what? I think I also have the Spirit. But when we're reading it, we don't think he has the Spirit. Okay, so he is giving his opinion. And giving his opinion, his thought and God's thought are the same. But contrast this with Matthew 16. When Peter, who just got the revelation concerning who Christ is, and heard the word about building the church, heard the Lord go on to say he's going to be persecuted, put to death, and raised up. And right away, he takes the Lord aside and begins to rebuke him. He's rebuking the Son of God. He's saying, this is not going to happen to you. I disagree with this. Then the Lord turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. For your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then he talked about denying himself and denying the soul life. So there in Matthew 16, Peter's mind was one with the satanic mind and was the expression of the satanic view, which shows how lethal the human mind can be especially when the person doesn't believe there's an enemy, then the enemy has the free ground to come out. But now in 1 Corinthians 7, here's a person who once was trying to murder us. He was breathing out murder. Now he's one with the Lord to such an extent that he can only give what he thinks. And what he thinks is the expression of what God thinks about that. This is the genuine thing. I feel uneasy when someone says, God showed me this. God spoke to me. Then I can't say God didn't show you. God didn't speak to you. But now you are so powerful. No, no one can relate to you. You're not open for fellowship. You don't have any, you have such a confidence. You, now you are powered by the fact you think God is behind you. I believe on that day of judgment, God will vindicate himself from so many things that were attributed to him that he never said. I never said that to you. That was, some, that was from another source. I didn't show that to you. That was from another source. But here... Once we, we are enlightened, we realize how precious this is to see God one with a human being and expressed in that human being. It's so endearing. And you just have the sense, I, I can relate to this person. I can be open to have fellowship. I'm not under judgment. There's not something strange, goofy, religious in human development. 
This is the issue. Okay, we go on. The issue meaning the result. Second, as God's chosen, redeemed, regenerated people who are one with him. See how we're building on the previous one. We need to be constituted with God. So Ephesians 3 says Christ is making his home in our heart. Colossians 3, 10 and 11 say Christ is all and in all. There's no, all the human distinctions are removed. Christ is all, but he's in all. So you're still here, but now Christ is going to be everything in your being. He'll be your love. He'll be your sincerity. He will be your truthfulness. He will be your humility. He will be your concern for people. He will be your forbearance. He will be your courage. All of this, he will be to you. So that's to be constituted with God, but we're still human. But the intrinsic element is now wrought into our being. So I read the subpoints. God's economy is to dispense himself into our being so that our being may be constituted with his being to be one constitution with his being. And the way is so simple. You just turn your heart to the Lord and open to him and exercise your spirit and say, Lord, dispense yourself into me today. It's just like we breathe him in. We drink the spirit. We feed on the word. Be as the divine being. <clears throat> God infuses us with his elements, causing us to be the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. I have two sons. If the older of the two were here, you would see a striking resemblance to his dad. And if you have some informal conversation with him and with me, you will realize our sense of humor is very much the same. There's just a kind of Kangassian sense of humor here. <laughs> and it, it'll become apparent that David Kangas is the same in life and nature as Ron Kangas, his dad, but he doesn't have Ron Kangas's fatherhood. So now he has two sons and a daughter, and he gave unique middle names to them, Joshua, True, Kangas. He said, that's the name. I said, you're the dad. I have no opinion. <laughs> and then Matthew Stone. And right now, Matthew's a little embarrassed about his middle name, but a wise teacher, when he was at Acacia Wood School, a Christian school, said, when you're older, you'll be thankful for that. So they also have the life and nature of their dad, but not his fatherhood. So, so be at peace. We're not claiming Godhead. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not in my office in Anaheim and here, but God is in my office and God is here. I'm not. And so we, we're being the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. We'll not be self-existing. But we're born of him. I mean, I've perceived that Every child born of a young couple, they have the same life and nature as their parents. 
Have we not been born of God? Amen. Is he not really our father? Amen. Then we have his life in nature. Okay. See, God's economy is that we eat Christ and become constituted with him. So then he's the bread of life for us to eat, digest, and assimilate. D, if we enjoy the Lord as our nourishment. God created us with taste buds. He didn't have to do that. He could just say, I just want you to exist. Just put something in your mouth and ingest it to stay alive. But he created us to enjoy what we eat. So now we can enjoy the Lord as our nourishment. He will become the constitution of our being. God wants you to enjoy him. He's a very enjoyable person. He knows how delightful he is. E, in the divine life and by the working of the law of the divine life, God will be wrought into us and we will be constituted with him to be his life and nature. So, uh, I had a healthy breakfast this morning, some porridge, and uh, there's a few other things. Now, I guess it's the autonomic nervous system, whatever it is, the law in my body is causing the food to be digested and assimilated. I'm not doing anything. I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to work at it. I can cooperate by moving some, by exercise. And so there is something in the divine life called the law of the spirit of life that causes this life to work spontaneously to make you a reproduction of Christ. So you just allow the life to come into you. And by the working of the law of life, God will work himself into you and constitute you with himself in life and nature. And so it's so simple. We just ask for this. So, day by day, we can pray, Lord, today, Dispense yourself into me more, all day long. Work yourself into me. What do you think would happen between now and just the end of this year, right? A little over a hundred days. If every day we allowed the Lord to dispense himself unhindered into our being. Don't you think by January 1st, 2019, you'd all have the sense there's more God in me than there was on September 15th. And now we come, in the remaining two or three minutes, on my part, for point three. As God's chosen, redeemed, and regenerated people who are one with God and constituted with God, we should live God. This means he is living in us, and we just allow him to be expressed through us by our being one with him. God's economy is to work himself into us so that we may take him in as our life and life supply in order to live him. In John 14, 19, the Lord said, because I live, you also shall live. In Galatians 2, 20, Paul said, Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God. Christ is living in him. He is one with the Christ living in him. So now he is letting Christ live through him to express him. 
be according to his economy, God's intention is to impart his life element, his substance, and the ingredients of his nature into our being so that we may live him. Now let me tell you a mystery, or if I could use another word, a paradox, a seeming contradiction. The more we become the same as God in life and nature, the more truly human we become. We don't become a third thing. What is this person? Not human anymore, not God in the Godhead? No. Sometimes saints ask, because I was one of many, many co-workers of Brother Lee. I didn't have a special relationship. I was just one of them. But I've been asked many times, well, this, what was he like? I can say many things, but I'm most fond of saying he's the most human person I've ever met. I don't have the time now. I could tell you some delightful stories about how Jesusly human he was. And so the more that we let the Lord live in us, the one who lives in us is the God-man, who is the most approachable, endearing person who ever walked on the earth. See, our daily life should actually be God himself, and thus be a life of constantly living God. To walk in a manner worthy of God is to live God, that is to express God in our daily living. And you don't make up your mind to do that and then send me a text saying, how am I doing? Am I expressing God today? Well, you're now in yourself, analyzing yourself. When you're really enjoying the Lord, everything is spontaneous. It just happens spontaneously. The body knows. Others know. You're not trying to do anything. That is self-effort. That's self-improvement. We're simply learning to be one with the Lord in the midst of our present human situation. That um, I'm very thankful that <clears throat> I get a ride from 1299 to here because if I were driving, I would never arrive at Alewhite. <laughs> Not in a city like Boston combined with a particular capacity that I have, a special gift that I have, it's almost miraculous. It's the gift of disorientation. <laughs> I, I just get lost effortlessly anywhere. It, it will surprise you how easy it is. So if, if I were driving, oh, just getting from one place to another would be a real challenge of whether or not I am one spirit with the <laughs> Lord without a GPS. I don't know how to use the Google thing. I know it's so good, but I'm afraid to use it. I don't know how to use it. My, someone dear to me will, will help me learn, I guess. The point is, just in the actual human situations, we learn to be one with him. Then the last point. Today, we are participating in the divine life and the divine nature so that we can live God in our humanity. So the truth here is profound, becoming one with God, being constituted with God, living God. But the life experience is so simple. We just open our being to him. We love him. We exercise to contact him. We read his word 
prayerfully. We have simple, short prayers. Lord, I give you today. Grow in me today. Work yourself into me today. Lord, cause me to enjoy you today. It's so simple. It's so delightful. It's so real. It's so practical. And this is our destiny. We have no choice. We will be holy. We will be sons of God. We will be the counterpart of the redeeming God. Why not allow this process to work out now so that our life in space and time will contribute to the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose? Okay, the brothers will direct us on what to do next. We, the, the, the total meeting of two sessions will dismiss by 1230. How we manage the time between now and then, uh, the brothers will help us to know what to do.